Hi, and welcome to And Introducing, a podcast about words, about music. I'm Chris Wade. And I'm Molly O'Brien. I'm Molly O'Brien. I'm Molly O'Brien. I'm Molly O'Brien. Yeah, I can hear I can hear it back this time. And introducing on the drums, it's Ryan Dusick, the founding drummer of the rock and roll band. Rock and roll? Rock and roll band. Maroon 5. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a little bit, we will be talking to Mr. Dusick himself about his experience coming up uh, drumming uh, as a high schooler signed to a major label. Yeah. Uh, the second one of these that we've uh, met in the last year or so, and I've uh, both in the boom times of the the heady days of the 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 grunge drunk major label 90s <laughs> grunge drunk <laughs> uh and i think that he you know Slur- he had, <laughs> wasted on slurm <laughs> uh, just yeah just just drinking up all my uh my my sound garden juices Slur- slurping up the slorge yes yeah. oh, dr- see, uh, just on the sh- l- wasted <laughs> on lakini's <laughs> juice there we go we found it i was gonna say uh sugar high on okay soda <laughs> 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 and signing every high schooler to crawl out of a battle of the bands in los angeles yeah uh not to uh, d- uh demean mr uh deuce ex- experiences uh we had a lovely we have a lovely conversation with him about his experience uh coming up getting signed uh popping with maroon five as they uh are going from you know touring with maroon five is they're opening on the ska circuit which is the uh, <laughs> borscht belt of uh 90s alt rock yes yes <laughs> and um to you know major success to uh his his uh eventual inability to play with the band anymore and then the rest of his, his life story which is equally as interesting so we'll be talking about that in a second but first uh hi molly how are you hi i'm great how are you doing i'm great it's uh thanksgiving week uh, here in New York, we ha- are capping off a year of manic travel by uh, sticking home and cooking for ourselves yes. and also doing what we love to do with each other, which is podcast, podcast. getting out, <laughs> pumping out the content, just potting it out. OK, so I guess I will start. But we're going to do a little background on Maroon 5 yeah. first and then we'll kick it over to the interview. Yeah. Uh, so, Molly, how do you feel about the band Maroon 5? Well, you know, in this particular context when we're talking to ryan who is a founding member of the band and he he recorded one album uh with brood five lucky for him it was the for me the best one uh i liked songs about jane when it came out um i would have been in middle school probably the right age for that album to hit for your demo yeah because obviously i was not experiencing grunge in any kind of like conscious way and my you know childhood into adolescence trended upward with the kind of phasing out of grunge into bigger shinier alt rock sounds as well as you know funkier (laughs) r&b influence sounds uh so that that hit and that was also coming at a time when i was obviously trying to figure out whether i liked pop music at all or if i needed to reject it because yes uh the you know the the cool kids liked it and i wasn't cool so what what did that make me uh, I remember Harder to Breathe being uh, everywhere on VH1, and I would I would watch the VH1 countdowns before um, it was always on MTV too. But uh, watching the VH1 morning countdown, like morning top twenty, mm-hmm. and seeing it, and every time just being I think like, I watch that too a yeah. lot. Yes, they would do like the twenty top videos. Ooh, right and they started school, at, yes. yeah, they started at like seven it was in the morning. VH1 or some before shit. school. MTV, MTV after, after school. school. Yes, exactly. Um, and I remember the the video and the song and being like, it's good. It's it's good. It's working for me. And it's good. It's good. Uh, 
yeah, I like the original, which as we'll discuss in a second, it's not the original Mar- Maroon 5 sound because before they were Maroon 5, they were yeah, there's, there's an alt-rock band. Yeah, they were called Cars Flowers, but... Uh, you know, it was rock music. It was pop rock music. Yes. Uh, funky, uh, in- intense pop rock music with a charismatic frontman who we all know is Adam they, Levine. They were, uh, in, in the parlance of our current times, quirked up white boys with a little bit of swag. Yeah. Busting it down sexual style. Yeah. Uh, and I didn't, but the thing that I didn't know when I saw them blow up was that they had already been a band for like 10 years at that point. Yes. Uh, and had been grinding it out, had already been dropped from a label once. <laughs> yes. And then this they, was, they'd, they'd already ta- been touring. They'd take the whole thing back into the shop yeah. and, and come out with a new model. Yeah. And also toured on that album for almost two years before they even got any kind of like real track. It was a slow burn mm-hmm. for that album, but I remember really liking it a lot. And then obviously Maroon 5. So I, I recently... Um, God, how did I come across this? Oh, I'm a big set list FM girl. Oh, yes. Which we were recently accused of that being like a real like muso thing. Do you oh, remember yeah. this? I mean, when did we, we talk about this? Yes, yet? yes. This was um, when we were doing the Pickathon Festival and we were out there with the, the you know, Matt and Will from Chapo. And, you know, we were trying to share our love of music festivals with them, which they received. They yeah. had a great time there. Yeah. They really enjoyed it. They, and they, they like music. They got the festival experience. But, uh, you know, they were making fun of uh, kind of terminal music heads, as, as any kind of terminal head can be. You know, you can yeah. be a terminal sports head. You can be a terminal, uh, you know, w- whatever, yeah. uh, comics head, whatever. Broadway musical. But w- when I offhandedly put up like, ooh, I wonder what kind of thing they're going to play. Maybe I was trying to see if um, Built to Spill was going to play Dystopian Dream Girl. And I okay. was like, better hit to Setlist FM. And they were like, what, what's Setlist FM? And they were, and I would like explain. It's like, oh, this is this wiki that yeah. tracks uh, live sets from every band. And it's all you just submitted. I'm, I'm on it all the time. They were, they were all like, son, you need music rehab. <laughs> You need you need music no, methadone that's to, you, that's a to great way come to, down from this. That's a great way to engage. Anyway, somehow I found myself one later night on the Maroon Five setlist.fm and saw that they this year played the Pyramids of Egypt. <laughs> uh, and I was looking at their Joining set list. Joining the rarefied likes of Earth, Wind, Earth, and, Wind Fire. and Fire, of course. And, uh, and Grateful Dead. Third yes. band we've covered who's played the Pyramids of Giza. Yes. Uh and I was looking at their set list and I was like, this has got to be one of the biggest collection of like really big hits. Like they've had a, like a, a couple of smashes s- yeah. per album each time and yes. they basically only play those or at least they did at the pyramids. So I want to get into this. I'll, I'll run by my thing okay, uh, really yeah, get, quickly. Get I was it. not the demographic target for Maroon 5, I, I don't think. As we, as we get into in the interview, yeah. who, because they perfect, they were forged. They veered away from you. Yeah, they, they were. Toward me. Yes, they were forged in a crucible of of moving from my type to your type. Yeah. Uh, which I don't know if we want to tease. We, we get into this in the interview. Yeah. Um, in um, Westwood, Los Angeles, near yes. UCLA. Yeah. Um, so, but I, you know, again, I don't want to slide it too hard, but, you know, I found it in- inoffensive. It wasn't for you. And then as time went on, it delved further away from anything from anything that I would think of. But yes, I always kind of respect, like every time I, you hear for the last two decades that Maroon 5 has a new album out and Adam Levine has a new, is, is back in the mix, mm-hmm. you're always like, Maroon 5 has another album? And then lo and behold... Two monster hits, monster hits off that yeah, album. Yeah, that you like. Not ten months later, are like, what song is this? Oh, this is off that new Maroon Five album. And then you're like, no, this album came out two years ago, and yeah. it's still on the radio. Yeah, and it, they do. Know, they do solidly have their finger Maroon on the five plays. They play. They have the, their finger on the 
pulse of what it will work on radio. Yes. Uh, but obviously it's quite different now than it was with that first kind of raw or yeah. rock and roll sound that I liked so much. And at this point being solidly in my 30s, I think you, you know this perspective comes with age and of being a long-term music head is like you you really got to hand it to Tim anyone who can uh like put a put chart hits in three different hits decades. in different decade I cannot like, remember oh I think it was uh the the queen um Ronnie Spector yes I maybe to, it wasn't oh I'll have to go back and look so once once someone pointed out in one of these books that having a hit in a different decade was like yes. a milestone that they really cared about I was like oh yeah because any not anyone but lots of people can have a hit in two hits in five years or two hits yeah. in seven years hit in a different decade Duran 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 yes. I think it was Duran Duran uh yes so so and Maroon 5 at this point has played in four different decades and had versions of them in four different decades yeah and hits in three different decades so like respect that's yeah. you, you put you're putting numbers on the board at that point and yeah. y- even if the songs are not for me like that that it, it's it's just impressive and oh also taking one of the other like crown jewels of pop stardom playing the super bowl playing the super bowl and i also thought you were going to point out another impressive thing which is that they did start in high school yes. uh, and have you know mostly stayed stayed together in that original format should we listen to yes well here's the thing that i want to get into yeah the thing that so kind of respect from a distance music's not much for me uh inoffensive to to their pop hits in uh high school and college kind of stopped thinking about them for a decade Mm -hmm. and then a decade later started thinking about them again in the sense of oh damn they're still going they're still they're still turning them out here's the thing that i want to get to what i find really fascinating about maroon 5 that is almost unique to their career and i would invite people to tell me other people other bands that this worked f- as much for mm-hmm. uh, is their complete train. While not changing as a band, their complete transformation from a rock band mm-hmm. that plays rock music to a band that is almost pure pop. Yeah. Uh, and I'm sure they, when they tour and stuff, they still play with instruments and whatever, but the yeah. sound of their music is, has completely transformed to from one point, a rock band to a pop act. And the only other act that I can think of that really strikes out to me is the current iteration of Panic at the Disco. Right. Like the transfer... A different, totally different type yeah. of music. From their first think. Uh, album. Is that... I write Sins Not Tragedies? Or is uh, that just one of the songs on that? Oh, God. What's the name of the beautiful wedding song? Yeah, that's a, that's called I Write Sins Not Tragedies, yes, but from, the album is called something different. Yeah, but like that's a rock album. Yeah. And then the High High Hope song, and then the stuff he was doing in Taylor Swift, that's like pure pop. So it's... I'm, yeah. I'm interested. In, what I was just thinking about before we logged on to the or turned on the thing is is thinking of like a ship of Theseus band, mm-hmm. a band that is like it is Adam Levine's the front man, but it is a project of multiple people together as a band that has changed so slowly over time mm-hmm. as to become something that it is almost unrecognizable from the first, and yet is still the same thing. Yeah. And when did the band of the what is Theseus's band? You know, yeah, yeah. Like, like when did it become a new thing? And we'll get into this with some of our clips. Well, yeah. Do we want to maybe start with Cars Flowers? Yes, let's start with Cars Flowers. So this was, you know, maybe first just to biographize, uh, re, you know, recap the book because we didn't, we don't get into a full and introducing style plot recap with our talk with Ryan. Um, but 
you know, the band started out in this kind of like ska punk Southern California zone. Yeah. Uh, and they were touring with ska bands. Uh, and your, your reels, big fish, your real, reels your gold's fish. finger. Yeah. And then it wasn't, you know, they, they, they got dropped by their label and had to like work to develop a new sound that was more kind of eclectic and uh, uh, fit a little bit better. These into white the boys mold. had to get some funk. Yes. Uh, but even that, to me, it, it actually makes a lot of sense that Maroon 5 sounds the way they do now is because they did evolve quite a bit then. That's a good point. Uh, so they do you want to play... early process of transformation mm-hmm. that gave them a early on sense of adaptability. Interesting, yeah. yes. Yeah. Okay, so this is Cars Flowers. I don't know exactly what year this is. Probably like 96 or something. Again, they're like or 18 or something in this. Yeah, they're pretty young. And this is their their lead single that uh, flopped from their album, which is called, I believe, The Fourth World. Cars Flowers, Soap Disco. The funny thing is, is that this might have hit like six years later. Yeah. Or, you know, it could have gotten placed on like the American Pie soundtrack. Yeah. And like, it's it's giving a, a teen comedy, like, yes. the, an SUV pulls up to like the campus type of song. Yeah, yeah. Or like walk into the big high school party. But also just their styling. They're all wearing suits and skinny ties. They're playing in like a kind of mod colored painted room. Yeah. It's somewhere between Weezer and like the strokes in styling. Uh, you Ra- know? Ryan wrote in the book that Weezer is a big, big yeah. influence. Yes. And you can hear it. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can also tell that like Adam, Adam Levine's, I mean, he's literally on the show, the voice, uh, but I feel like his voice isn't quite utilized yet the way it needs to be in order for him to be the lead singer that he is. So that's, I mean, we don't have to listen to the yeah. whole thing, but that's I mean, that's that. almost all the song. I mean, it, it, you know, it is funny them touring with ska bands and being in that pop punk scene, especially again, they're, they're cute little boys in suits. Yeah. Uh, it, when you're touring around, uh, you know, with, with, um, Blink-182 and stuff when they're, when they're like real nasty boys with right. like, you know, paperclip or uh, not paperclip, uh, safety pin piercings and stuff like mm-hmm. that. You know, you can see why it's tight, you know, it's catchy. They got, they got some talent, but it doesn't quite fit it. Yeah. So then let's play Harder to Breathe because that's, I feel, I feel like that's obviously what's synthesized. There, I think there might even be, there's bigger hits on that. On this is their Jane, first single. But yeah. All right. This is uh, Harder to Breathe. Yeah, you say that my behavior is unacceptable So condescending, unnecessary, and critical I have the tendency of getting very physical So watch your step, cause if I do, you need a miracle You dream me dying, make me wonder why I'm even here The double vision I was seeing is finally clear You want to stay, but you know very well I want you gone Now pick the tread the ground that I am walking on Understand what I mean when I say there's no way we're gonna give up. And like a 
but it is it is just funny how like you know and they're they're the reason that i think this that it's like oh yeah this is what this is what the 2000s sounded like you know yeah oh 9-11 has happened suddenly <laughs> uh, Where it's like a little it's a little darker a little sexier yeah i feel like it's also dovetailing with the end of the boy the boy band era yes. and more into like the justin timberlake solo stuff but yeah timbaland is referenced as a as an influence yeah but as, as opposed to pop punk stu- stuff it's got like it's got a little rhythm, you know, it's got a little swing to it. It's got a mm-hmm. little uh, sexiness. Yeah. And it's also just a ke- it's, it's a catchy song. It's got a hook. Yeah. But it is still, and this is a point I want to get at, four guys playing instruments. Yes. This is a rock band song. Yeah. It is very slickly produced. It is very, you know, uh, you know, uh, a major label-y, but mm-hmm. it is... Listen, this is a guitar solo. Yes. It's a pretty shredding guitar solo. Yeah. Okay, so that's their, fir- their first single. Yeah. Uh, that's That album is a huge breakthrough. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have bigger hits off of it, but, you know, that this this they become one of the biggest rock bands working right yeah. then. And, well, maybe not the one of the biggest then, because there are a lot of big rock bands mm-hmm. in the... Uh, early 2000s still yeah correct and so what i was actually aware of you know ryan drummed on this album and he went on tour before it and then you know once it started started getting bigger and then his body started to fall apart yeah they were real road dogs on this album they paid like 200 shows a year or something like like that in less than two years or something like that and like at first a lot of it was literally them like driving in a passenger van like it wasn't like a like cushy they were being a rock they band. were gr- they were grinding yeah and l- literally because uh ryan had like a exacerbated old baseball pitching injury mm-hmm. plus like what sounded like some like good old-fashioned like anxiety slash like getting in your head about things uh which was described very vividly and then had to leave the band and i was actually aware they i think it was a cover story room five got written about in rolling stone for their second album and they talked about having to let him go Mm -hmm. and he got interviewed in it and basically said something along the lines of like not being this is in like 2006 i think 2006 or five or six and he said you know i wasn't happy about the way that we left but i understood and i just remember the detail of him saying like he you know he's he's over and he's in a better place he can he doesn't even have to change the channel when maroon five comes on the tv (laughs) and just that imagery of him like home yeah uh while watching the band that he has been in since he was like 17 years old yeah blow up and fly away and he has to and he just sees it on tv i was just like oh my god part of the the drama of his story is that you know he is launched out of the band and he it's kind of unspoken but said that like he doesn't have to work again yeah so it's then it's like what do i do i can't drum and i have all this you know have all these resources and he just ends up basically like diving into addiction like for mm-hmm. over a decade uh before getting out of it and it's a recovery novel um we have a different podcast which we don't advertise a ton on here uh infinite cast where i'm reading chris the book infinite jest which has themes of you know going to mm-hmm. he, going to aa and doing all the steps and all that stuff and so i was reading that i was like hey another that's a that's a pretty good AA podium story yes. is being like i used to be in maroon five and now i'm not uh and uh i had to figure out how to how to live that way so that that's where the story ends well obviously we get a little bit more into it in the 
interview but uh did we want to listen to like the current day maroon yes. five sound? so this is where i want to get musically with it with the yeah. fascinating musical transition this is a maroon five single from last year which features megan the stallion mm-hmm. called uh beautiful mistakes It's beautiful, it's bittersweet, you're like a broken home to me I take a shot of memories and black out like an empty street It's honestly funny listening to this because that sample that they're working with yeah. is a guitar. Yes. <laughs> or it sounds like a gently strummed, yeah. like harp-like I guitar. I mean, is the Maroon 5 guitarist playing that guitar? Yeah, I would yeah. have to, he must. The point that I'm getting at is that th- we are now in pure, like, out of the box, pop. you know, pop. Pure pop. Yeah, pure yeah. pop. Well, I was going to say, I didn't, unfortunately, write, uh, highlight it in the book, but he uh, Ryan does address that, you know, their sound is quite different from when he was on. And, you know, he, I believe he said, like, people ask him, like, what do you think about it? Or, like, would you have done the same thing? And he basically says yes, because that is who Maroon 5 is, is an, an evolution of a band fitting into whatever is the most popular sound mm-hmm it can express itself through. Yes. And in this case, it is kind of like EDM and influence pop, which has been the dominant form of pop music for the past, like, like five, five, six, seven years. Almost 10 years, yeah, yeah, actually, exactly. now. Since I would say, like, what, 2013 or 2014? Yeah, yeah. Something so, like, that. like, that, you know, that's from the, the author's mouth. Pen. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you have to... It, it, it truly is... You know, so I, I think it would be easy if you're, like, a rock purist who is basically not a type of person that exists anymore to write this off as like yeah. i don't know craven or you know like uh, yeah, I mean, it, you know, a rock purist might be like, oh, that's that's cra- so craven, that's a sellout, but it is just like, that is how you persist as a band. Evolve or die, dude. Yeah, it really is. So, yeah, um, it's either that or like, I mean... Be, have enough legacy momentum to be like the Rolling Stones or U2 or something. Yeah, but yeah, for, ba- for bands that is incredibly difficult and even other pop bands that have gotten popular after Maroon 5 uh when i say popular i mean very popular like an imagined dragon they are doing the same thing they are a rock band uh and their output is very it's produced to the point where the organic playing of the instruments is not really forward i mean this might be too many qualifiers to make a salient point but of bands post 9-11 that popped post 9-11 uh, has any band stayed together, been this successful or this consistent, and is still around? Mm-hmm. Are they basically the greatest post nine eleven band by like pure? If yeah. we're doing like, if we're doing like sp- sp- count the rings numbers, 
I can't think of any others at the time. Obviously, the only other thing to point out at this time is the incredible popularity of the emo revival and the pop punk revival and to a slightly lesser extent, new metal. Yes. As we can see with instant sellouts of the When We Were Young yes. festival and then the new metal one that's happening next year. They've already done an- another When We Were Young. That's clearly, you know, bands like Paramore and My Chemical yes. Romance, who I think, I mean, My Chemical Romance, Romance like- famously formed, but because of 9-11. Yes. Uh, but they popped a little later, you know? Yeah. So I think when you're going longest and most successful, even my cat, like Maroon 5, yeah, I feel like it's like, like orders a, a, of magnitude yeah. more successful. But yeah, it's <sighs> it's an interesting heritage. <laughs> yes, it is. I mean, they're just, I, I, they, they are that like uniquely, they, they, there is a uniqueness about Maroon 5 where even if most, if like, especially more of the newer music, I'm like, this, you know, this is uh, what I might uh call like hotel lobby music yeah uh i again i gotta hand it to them for for navigating the uh, the vicissitudes of of popular uh, music that uh aptly that that um strategically that with that much talent i guess which then makes it all the more poignant to have been the founding drummer and having them still you know still be going on uh, well, we have this interview coming up. Uh, there's a lot more about their early days, which is very interesting. The and again, days. this is like this the something that we're very fascinated with the transition from a, a group of kids in a garage practicing stuff to major label, yeah. big like t- billboard topping part to pop su- success. Yeah, um, you know stuff about the actual recording process about songs about Jane, and then also some I, we get into like uh, productivity and and mental health of like a, an exploding yeah you know pop artist, uh, which is something I'm always fascinated with because being a famous uh, musician is labor, uh, yes. and uh, obviously had an effect on Ryan's life in a big way. So we we got into that, which I was really happy to do but it was a good chat he's a good good dude the book is called harder to breathe a memoir of making maroon five losing it all and finding recovery on to ryan in a second all right we are now joined by ryan dusick founding member of the band maroon five ryan how's it going it's going great thanks for having me on thanks for joining us are you are you joining us from beautiful maybe not actually sunny los angeles today yeah, I'm in LA and uh, it's been raining this morning, which is uh, a rarity. We need it though, so it's good. Well, I've read your book, uh, Harder to Breathe. Very, It's an amazing book. Um, we're, we're here to talk about it today and I figured I would just kick it off with kind of a softball. Uh, what was it like being a teenager in LA in the 1990s? <laughs> Uh, I have great memories of being a teenager in LA in the, in the nineties. Uh, I guess mixed, I mean, it's filtered, but you know, sort of like a sepia memory now, you know, like from an old (laughs) flashback, um, it seems, you know, so long ago in some ways, but in some ways it seems like just yesterday. Um, I was really lucky, you know, to have the guys and to bond with them in the nineties being the fans that we all were of, you know, Seattle grunge uh which was a different sort of setting than LA of course uh but we loved that music and that was my passion something that i really connected to as a brooding uh teenager you know with sort of uh too much self reflection and um you know disillusionment of 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 youth so uh it was both a a dark time and a wonderful time i guess <laughs> well you you know we start talking about being a teen in the 90s and you 
you know, you immediately kind of go to your identification with the grunge music um, at that time. I mean, did you have a sense, you know, because, you know, L.A., you're coming into music, you're really into grunge. Uh, you know, L.A. itself is so identified with kind of the glam and metal scenes of the 80s. Did you have a sense that that transition was happening as like the music that you you liked was discreetly different than the music that was like the L.A. scene? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when I started playing the drums, it was the late 80s and it was right in the middle of the hairband era. And the Sunset Strip, of course, was like, you know, the center of it. And if you turned on mtv you know i was watching headbangers ball and uh i think i learned how to twirl my sticks before i learned how to play a beat you know (laughs) (laughs) well my first band uh played on the strip in the early 90s and it was like the death rattle of the hairband era so like the bands that we were playing in front of all had the spandex and the big hair and you know chugging bottles of whiskey on stage and uh twirling their sticks and you know tongues out so uh that was what we were we (laughs) entered into when we started playing on the strip but we were of the next generation who were transitioning to the flannel and the doc martens and all that (laughs) i I wanted to ask you about because yeah you played uh in a band with your brother and you were playing at all these kind of like legendary Hollywood clubs, but at that point it was like pay to play. Uh, so what, I mean, did, was it still exciting to at least like be kind of like in the rooms where it happened, even if it wasn't necessarily like quite the same vibe as it was when, you know, even just a few years earlier. Yeah, it was really exciting, you know, walking on stage at the Troubadour or the whiskey, a go, go, you know, there's just so much history there that whatever the context, you can just feel that, you know? Um, I just remember the the first time I went to see my brother's band before I was in it, I was just so excited to be in those clubs being myself, you know, 13, probably at the time, 12, 13, and then playing there when I was 14, 15 was so exciting. I mean, you know, the pay to play thing, it is what it is. And uh, it was a little unfortunate that there was no quality control really, uh, including our band, <laughs> you know, our band was pretty crappy, <laughs> but it was still cool. It was kind of were those shows more kind of the thing where it's like the only people in the crowd are the other bands waiting to play, and you still have to tr- do your very best to like try to get something out of them. Yeah, yeah. There was like eight bands each night, and so the other bands were in the crowd, and then you know your parents and their parents. but by the time you know we were we started cars flowers uh we had a lot of high school kids there and it was it was a cool scene you know mosh pits and all that so i wanted to ask obviously you know in your youth being an athlete was uh you know as important to your kind of uh upbringing as music if not more so i'm just curious of like whether the athlete like mindset does that help or hurt a, cr- a creative music mindset would you say well it's interesting i didn't realize until later that the combination of the two is is more rare than i had thought you know um yeah although adam and i are, are similar in that way adam's a real basketball guy um and you know he's just as passionate about that as he is about music <laughs> baseball was my sport but um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that that there's a different, a very different mindset. And I, I think part of the reason why I started having trouble with baseball at the like the high school level was that it was a very different, almost sort of militaristic attitude about performance. Yeah. That I couldn't really relate to. And and with music, it was much more creative and spiritual. And uh I just that just felt much more natural to me. So that's why I think I kind of 
for a lot of other reasons, but one of the main reasons felt more passionate as I got a little older about being in a band more than being on a team. Well, I would certainly say that drumming is the, uh, you know, the most athletic position of the uh, classic rock band, you know, so... Uh, it, it certainly does take a little, uh, and we'll get into this, the, uh, the, the, the physicality of an athlete to, to do it for so long. Yeah. I, you know, I think that's why I picked the drums because my brother was a guitarist and he had very good sort of, um, fine motor skills, which he got from my, mm -hmm. from my mom. I think, uh, I got my dad's sort of athletic, larger muscle coordination and I can't really play lead guitar or, or anything like that very well. The, the drums was just to me, it felt like a very physical, almost cathartic instrument to play because you're just bashing out what you're feeling, uh, especially for me playing the kind of music I was at the time. It was very loud and very heavy. And I didn't learn, you know, the fine uh, sort of stick technique. I was just kind of throwing the sticks at the, <laughs> at the drums and cymbals as hard as I could. <laughs> let's let's get into uh, meeting the other guys from cars flowers which then becomes maroon five uh i was really struck in your book by how you described um you know just meeting adam and kind of seeing the potential in his like voice and like musicality of wanting to be in like a tr a power trio and, and like do like a prog metal like tool i just love the fr kind of the frustration that you had of just being like i i see i have this like vision for like you know what this could be and then he's just like you know i've i've got uh i've got other friends and like kind of another vision for this but like i guess you know what's the like sliding doors version where you start like a power trio tool style band with adam levine yeah, that was my first vision for the band because Adam has this high voice. You know, he was 14 when yeah. we started the band. I was 16. Uh, I was really into Tool and Rage Against the Machine and, and Soundgarden, really heavy riffs. Um, and he had this voice that sounded like Sting, <laughs> which I thought was cool. Yeah, it was cool. We both loved the police, but, you know, I was like, what am I going to do with that? And he was, you know, just getting started and. Uh, he wanted to be Eddie Vedder, which was the irony, you know, <laughs> because <laughs> the low voice he was doing an impression of didn't really suit him. Uh, but yeah, I thought, you know, we'd have like a like a riffy, weird time signature kind of tool Soundgarden vibe uh, with a three piece of guitar, bass and drums and then have him sing high melodies on top of that. Uh, and, you know, I, I thought that would be a cool idea. And it, it's kind of started out that way, but he really wanted to be Pearl Jam. And uh, it just kind of went a different direction. And then he started writing great melodies and it got a little poppier. <laughs> I, I feel like it must be hard to think about anything other than the, you know, huge wave of grunge that was crashing down around everyone at that time. Like it was that that seemed cool. So I get it. Yeah. Will you talk just a little bit maybe about, you know, how you what what you felt like the journey was from like a high school band kind of playing around and experimenting to you know, thinking more seriously about wanting to do, you know, to play music for a living. It, well, it happened pretty quickly for us, really. We we started the band and that summer we were playing on the strip here in L.A. And uh, so we were already, you know, playing in clubs and stuff when we were kids. And then that I think it was, yeah, it was New Year's of 95. So basically just a year into being a band, uh, we made our first real studio demo at a place called room 222 in hollywood um and we had we had literally made the demo that day had a tape in our pockets uh and played this 
party down at a, a, a Malibu beach house that night. And there just happened to be a dude walking down the beach who was uh, starting an indie label. And he heard us playing and he walked in. I don't know what he could have heard because we were just goofing <laughs> around playing like white zombie covers. And stuff like that. <laughs> but he came in, he thought we, we had a sound that he liked and uh, we handed him the demo tape we made that day. And we were, you know, spring break that year, we were uh, in the studio at um, Sound City making an indie record with him. And we took that uh, record and, and shopped it to major labels. And before everyone was out of high school, we had a record deal with Reprise Warner Brothers. So it wasn't like a big thought process, like we're going we're gonna to make a go of this. It was like, let's make a demo. And then all of a sudden we were getting interest from labels. You know, on the show we we do a lot of musician memoirs, and it's it's funny, it's interesting because I'm I think we always try to try to focus in on that moment where it goes like music because it's like oh just a thing in my life too like oh this could be real this could be my life mm-hmm. uh, and it is just funny how often the it's nothing more uh, complicated than like the right guy was walking by at the right time you know yeah yeah and I have to give a lot of. Uh you know, kudos to Tommy Allen, who was walking down the beach. He and his partner, John D. Nicola, who had written, uh, co-written two of the songs from the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Okay. That was his claim to fame. And they had, you know, a little cash to invest in their own label. They saw something in us, you know, that was very raw. You know, we were definitely <laughs> a diamond in the rough at that point. And they were so great and really fostered. They were our first real education in um you know arrangement and in recording you know and less is more and playing for the track and just like a lot of really great lessons in terms of how to make a record and you were around like 17 or at that around that time something like that yeah i was 17 the other guys were 15 16 at that point <laughs> that's, that's um did you feel because obviously I, th- I think you mentioned it in the book that like you know this truly was kind of the last gasp of major labels kind of like throwing a lot of money around in the development phase of bands like were did you feel aware of that at the time or was that something that you only kind of maybe noticed afterwards of like the practice of how they would you know spend a lot of money and like try to develop a bunch of bands at once and then get lucky with one and then you know if Discard the other ones didn't other work ones, yeah. out yeah then didn't matter yeah i mean in 97 when we put out our first album um, you know, there was no coming internet, uh, shift in the, in the business that we saw. I mean, maybe some people on the inside knew that was coming, but as far as we knew, this was the music business. This was the way it always was and the way it would always be, which was that you had major labels who basically decided who was going to be, uh, you know, they were, they discovered the next big thing and they mm-hmm. signed 10 of them every year. And they spent a million dollars on each of them. And one of them had a big hit and they made all their money on that one and they dropped the rest. That was just the <laughs> the business model, I think. Yeah. And we didn't really know that. We were obviously really green teenagers getting into the music business. And they were telling us, you guys are going to be the biggest priority at our label in 97. It's going to be the biggest thing since the Beatles. And we just believe that, you know, we're going to be the next Beatles and we're going to put out a single and it's going to go number one. And our record's going to go platinum overnight. And that's just kind of what we assumed. Uh, didn't really work out that way. <laughs> <laughs> we had a flop. Our record came out and it, and we spent about six months on the road promoting it. It went nowhere. And we came home with our tails between our legs and um, 
essentially got dropped from our label for that tour were you going out with kind of like ska bands is the is this what i remember correctly <laughs> can you name names which, which which bands are we talking about real big fish lesson jake wow that was you hit it spot on first time real big fish was the first tour we did uh ever in 97 uh they were friends of ours in southern california real big fish we, we opened for them and the aquabats featuring travis barker and nice. uh Another tour with Goldfinger and Save Ferris, and uh, you're you're describing my uh, you know my seventh grade uh, CD <laughs> binder right now. So <laughs> yeah, well, it was a lot of fun. You know, it was music that was just so silly and goofy. And I remember going on stage with the Aquabats, and they would have like a um, a fight sequence every night where they would <laughs> fight. You know, if you don't know the Aquabats, they were they were like almost like a cartoon group of um superheroes and they had their enemies the sand fleas and they would dress up as the sand fleas and protest their own show like in the parking <laughs> lot beforehand <laughs> and then during the show they'd go on they'd play their fight song and then the opening bands would come out dressed up like their their uh the villains and we'd come on and they would basically beat the crap out of us so that was fun <laughs> i mean so when you were doing doing those first tours i mean i I get that it's in like the, the wake of, you know, this album that you put together and had very high expectations for. And you were like, oh, it's not, you know, quite going exactly as we imagined. But, you know, being in that like ska scene, it was at in the late 90s very much like a, a scene. And was there at least like some solace in being like, oh, well, at least we're like in this group of people who are connected through all these towns. And like, you know, the, it's a way to get known as you go, you know, you know, place to place in the the among this mm -hmm. fandom that has these very uh, uh, discreet attachments to these ska bands. You know, yeah, that was the idea, but it didn't really work out that way for us <laughs> because they didn't really accept us as their own because we got the same comments over and over again. They'd say like, "Oh, you guys have some all right melodies and stuff, but you'd be a lot better." if you had a horn section <laughs> or if you played the guitar on the up, on the upstroke, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, from all those, uh, strict dogmatic ska fans are like, look, if it doesn't have a horn section, I will not buy that CD. Right. And so we thought that was kind of silly. Uh, but so it, we never really fit in fully. I mean, we have this sort of punky edge that a lot of the bands have. Um, but it was not really our scene. And so it didn't really take off there for us. The I just want to point out a moment in the book uh, that really stood out to me where you said uh, Travis Barker would literally just be like walking around with like a drum pad and just like practicing <laughs> drums all the time and how that, you know, you talking to the book about your relative insecurity of like your technique and, you know, how you learned the drums. Did that just drop? Was that kind of like a demon just kind of like driving you absolutely crazy just to see Travis Barker like wailing on a pad all the time? Yeah, that was definitely the first uh, challenge to my ego as a drummer because, <laughs> you know, I, I was a, a garage rocker, really, you know, yeah. and and when I got on stage at the clubs here in L.A., uh, people thought I was great because I made a lot of noise and I played really hard and really fast. And, uh, so I thought I was a really great drummer. And then, you know, you see Travis, who was a marching drummer, you know, drumline guy who had impeccable stick technique. And he had, yeah, he had a, a literally like a drum pad, uh, strapped to his knee and a pair of sticks in his hands at all time. And he would, we'd just be sitting backstage and wherever we were, he'd sit down and just start doing paradiddles. <laughs> and it was like, you know, just like impossibly fast. And, 
And I would just like look at him and I'd be like, I don't even know where to begin to try to do what he's doing. Yeah. Um, and then on top of that, I mean, it's one thing for somebody to just be really technically proficient um, and, and to be in awe of that. But he had uh, a real power and feel that was unique too. I mean, everyone would sit around the stage and watch him. The Aquabats were a lot of fun because they put on a great show, but he was just like, he had this really driving energy that was, I mean, every band we were on tour with was trying to steal him from the Aquabats. <laughs> God bless the guys in my band. They were, they, I think they knew that, you know, cause he was getting so much attention, you know, uh, they knew that I was a little insecure and they were kind of like, you know, you're great. You're the, you're the best, <laughs> you know, rock drummer, uh, for our band at least. So I, I felt the love from them. They were not going to replace me with Travis. <laughs> oh. Well, you know, obviously the, this first debut album, um, that you guys had as Cars Flowers did not do as expected. Um, I want to talk about this kind of era where you sort of had to like rebuild, uh, because I'm really interested in the place where you started, uh, playing live together um the westwood brewing company what one thing we always talk about in the podcast is like physical spaces really do seem to influence like musical movements in a way like whether that's just a band or a scene and so i'd love to ask just like what this scene was like of like playing these shows at the westwood brewing company when you're kind of learning how to be like the in the next phase of the band yeah we look at uh the westwood brewing company or bruco as we all called it in westwood um, Bruco was kind of our, our cavern club, you know, it was, uh, it was the place where we kind of cut our teeth and found our sound and, and really developed what would become Maroon 5. Um, it was, you know, the band almost broke up. We didn't, we never broke up, but we, we kind of took a little bit of a hiatus after the failure of the Cars Flowers album. And I was back at UCLA in Westwood, um, going to school and kind of, just trying to find what my path was going to be if I was not in the band. Um, and, but we got back together and somehow we ended up back on the same page musically, even though we were branching out into a lot of different new styles for us. Um, the element of soul and groove was really the biggest turning point in terms of Adam finding his voice as a vocalist uh, and us finding our sound as a rhythm section uh, we were listening to a lot of Stevie Wonder and other classic soul and funk and then contemporary R&B and hip hop um, tracks produced by Timbaland and the Neptunes and stuff like that. Um, so that was kind of what was happening musically when we kind of restarted the band and and uh, and the Bruco or the Westwood Brewing Company was the one club in Westwood that you could play live music. And it was also the bar that all the sorority girls would hang out at on Thursday nights. Hey, there you go. <laughs> so I, it was my big idea. I said, let's let's go in there um, and do a, a like a residency. I said, Thursday nights at Bruco, uh, I'll talk to the guy. And they didn't want to do it and they didn't want to pay us anything. They were just like, and I said, I promise you, if you, if you put us there every Thursday night, within a month, you'll have a line around the block. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I was right. Within a month, we had a line. Literally, they were turning people away at the door, and the room was packed. And we would play like the first. We'd play two sets, two hour sets, uh, which was new for us. Like we had been, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a kind of a punky band that played a half hour set and one and done. This was like we played ten o'clock and we played midnight, and we only had like eight songs, so we had to jam and we had to do covers, and we had to kind of figure out how to be a, a 
a party band, really. Mm -hmm. So it became like, how are we going to entertain these people all night? And so we were started doing like uh, Shaka Khan covers and like <laughs> uh, doing Beast of Burden by Rolling Stones and um, Tell Me Something Good by, uh, by Rufus and uh, all these different covers that we started. And then we would just like extend them and, and Adam would take an extended guitar solo and Jesse would take a piano solo and it was just like it became, yeah, it, in terms of the, the space dictating the sound, it was this sweaty college um, little bar that we realized our duty as performers was not just to try to come up with a good song and play it. We had to actually put on a show and mm -hmm. figure out how to fill the space and use our musicianship um, and our personas on stage in a different way than we had before. That's so fascinating. And that makes so much sense because, you know, I, I'm a big punk guy. I love going to punk shows and stuff. And it's like the purpose, the, the intention of the band at a punk show is not necessarily to be fun. It's to be like punishing, pummeling, like, you know, assault. I mean, that's Intense. what makes it good. And that's yeah. what you respond to as an, uh, as the audience. But yeah, having to then, even if that that's where you're coming from to adjust that to be a college party where the thing is to be light, fun, bouncy, flirty, flirty. <laughs> yes, exactly. It, like it, that yeah. totally makes sense. And how, how it would affect your, you know, the direction of the same three people taking the same type of music, you know? Yeah. Think about it. We were playing for a bunch of like, uh, aggro punk ska dudes. And then all of a sudden we're playing for cute college chicks. Yes. <laughs> we wanted to, of course, play music that was going to be uh, engaging and fun for that crowd. And we realized that it was it was a lot of fun to play that kind of music and that we had it fit with where we were at musically and, mm. and creatively. So it was just a natural kind of segue into a different vibe. Which I feel like also probably mirrored, you know, as the like mid 90s turned into the late 90s and early 2000s of like i do feel like the music the music chilled out a little bit <laughs> yeah well it's it, everything in the grunge scene got into like a terminal heaviness yeah. and at a certain point we're like all right we, can, we can't go this dark this heavy anymore there's got to be some room for fun in, in popular music you know yeah, absolutely <laughs> so let's talk about the songs about jane recording process um it sounds like that was another kind of instance of, you know, both learning on the job, but also, you know, taking everything that you had sort of learned so far and like putting it into this particular expression that ended up blowing up, I, I would assume, far beyond even your expectations from when you first got signed to a major label. Yeah, making songs about Jane was, uh, looking back on it now, really a magical time when everything kind of came together for us. I think we knew that it was special and that what we were doing was special, but I don't think we knew to the degree uh, because when you're in the middle of something, you, it's hard to be objective. You know, yeah. uh, we could hear all the flaws and all the things that we thought we weren't doing quite as well as we wanted to, but yeah, everything we'd learned up until that point, we were applying in terms of uh, just work ethic and, and really what it takes to, to create a record that can, um, that can cross over from just being something with some cool ideas to mm. actually being a, a hit record, you know, something that people actually listen to and want to, it's going to be played on the radio. It's going to be, um, you know, popular and being in a band for eight years at that point and doing the kind of work that we'd been doing, playing at Bruco and all that stuff, um, 
just our sense of arrangement, our, our sense of space between us as musicians and the groove was really kind of coming to a place where we were finding our pocket, you know, mm-hmm. um, there was a, not exactly a clear vision in the band of what it was going to sound like. We knew what kind of music we were inspired by, but half of us kind of wanted it to be this very organic, soulful record that embraced our rock roots and was a throwback to more classic R&B and soul kind of records. Uh, And then the other half wanted to make a very modern, uh, almost program sounding kind of record. Mm -hmm. And uh, I mean, I could see both. I I was inspired by both, but being a drummer, of course, I didn't want to use loops and I didn't want to do programming. I wanted to like, in the same way that like Bonham was influenced by the meters and then did his rock impression of that, or the chili peppers were inspired by funk uh, and hip hop rap, you know, and then, and then Chad Smith like played a hard rock version of that. That's what I wanted to do, you know, was Mm -hmm. like be inspired by the Neptunes and James Brown or whatever, but then play it the way that I would, you know, the way a garage Mm -hmm. rocker would. Um, So there was a little bit of argument, going on about that as the process started and even with our record label thankfully the label was on my side they wanted to make a record that was more organic which is rare you know they most <laughs> of the time I think, you know, a label probably wants to make a really slick record they wanted to have it sound like we did on stage mm-hmm. uh, whereas adam and jesse and mickey i think really wanted to make a really polished record um so we went back and forth and w- the, the end product was kind of a um I guess a happy accident between all of the different influences. I was just going to say that's dialectics, baby. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was just going to say the, the pro tools experience, you know, how, how did that, how did that make you feel? <laughs> yes. How does it feel to be a veteran of the loudness wars? <laughs> yeah, that was a new thing. Uh, I think the first time we ever recorded it in pro tools as a band was in the demos for songs about Jane. Uh, and I, Literally, I had never played to a metronome before that, you know, yeah. or click track. Um, we just went in before that on, you know, analog tape, pressed record and laid it down. And, you know, listening back to some of those early recordings, that's part of the reason why there's a lot of energy and just sort of mm-hmm. youthful zeal is because there's nothing restraining us whatsoever. It just takes off. And yeah, it's it can be a little sloppy and all over the place for that reason, too. But um <laughs> It was, it was definitely an adjustment, but we knew we wanted to make a record that was modern in that way. Um, so I had to get used to it real quick. <laughs> and then it was really easy also to get, I think, a little anal, um, mm-hmm. a little obsessive about how we were making it and to want it, the, the temptation to edit things. We actually had to go back and fix some of that because our first impulse was to try to make everything perfect because... I'm a perfectionist. Adam is a perfectionist it, in two different kind of ways. But uh, the label even said, you know, it sounds a little stiff. <laughs> so yeah. we, I went back and re-recorded live takes of the drums on top of like half of the, the tracks uh, after we were done with the overdubs because we wanted it to have a little more breath to the performance. And I think that really was part of the reason why the record ended up sounding like it had a lot more of the older kind of groove to it uh, that was lacking at that point as everything Mm -hmm. was going digital. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, this, the kind of next segment of the book is to me, just one of the craziest kind of confluences of, you know, success. And then also, you know, struggle for you of, 
you know, physically and mentally, you know, on one hand, you guys go from like driving in like a literally a passenger van and playing like 500 shows in two years and uh, seeing the fruits of that, where you go from that to headlining your own tour and, um, you know, winning awards and playing late night shows and all this stuff. But then your body is literally also breaking down. So can you just talk about like, I mean, I truly like, obviously you wrote it in the book, but like, I truly, it's just one of those things I truly cannot imagine actually experiencing kind of in tandem. Yeah, everything that happened between 2002 and 2006 uh, was really like a mindfuck for me to deal with uh, because it was the best of times and the worst of times, to quote Charles. Um, You know, everything we've been working for for a decade kind of was coming to fruition. And it wasn't something that happened overnight, even at that point. I mean, we were on the road in 2002 and 2003 nonstop. I mean, we drove ourselves around this country probably mm-hmm. six times over in a, in a van um, with a U-Haul in tow. And, you know, we were just going from one tour to the next uh, opening up for larger acts. And each tour we came to town, like more people knew our name, more people knew the songs. And like all of a sudden they were singing the songs back to us and, um we were our record didn't even come out until we were already on tour for like six months uh the first single harder to breathe took like a year to get to peak in the charts like it was a very slow gradual build which we knew it was going to be and we Mm. were up for but i wasn't prepared for how much of a toll that was going to take on on me physically and as it turns out mentally and emotionally and spiritually which was something I didn't really fully understand mm-hmm. at the time. I knew that there was something something that was a problem, and I knew that my ability to perform was diminishing and that I was having physical pain. And there was a deep down feeling that uh, there was something defective in me. Um, and I couldn't really describe mm-hmm. it better than that for the longest time. Um, but it was a combination of a lot of different factors, and it really ramped up to uh, a fever pitch for me and becoming a real problem right as we were cresting, you know, with like world stardom, you know, um, performing all over the world, traveling, you know, jet setting and playing on, on, um, on Saturday night live and the tonight show. And uh, you know, just the, the, the very big time that you imagine was when I was starting to have some real problems performing the way that I wanted to. And it was just really taking a toll on my constitution to the point where I was exhausted and really beaten down. Uh, so, I mean, that was just what was happening in real time, but, but then dealing with all of that. And as I said, you know, sort of the, the mind fuck of it all, it's like everything I wanted, I, we're accomplishing now. And I just don't think I can continue to do it. Something that stood out in the book was, I can't remember who said it, but just the advice that you need, you know, as you're a band that's like starting out and trying to be successful, that you have to Mm -hmm. say yes to everything. And how obviously that's, you know, then you say yes to everything and you get all these opportunities and they create more opportunities, but it is so antithetical to like being a healthy person also of just like having to literally like work yourself to death in order to, achieve that success and especially we we just saw um or i just saw uh, red hot chili peppers play watching chad smith play the drums when he's like 60 now i'm just like i cannot believe he is even able to do that for that long because it also does seem like doing so, like, a movement like that for that long would totally like break you down yeah you know? 
it's it's antithetical to what I would tell people as a therapist now, you know, it's like, uh, it's okay to say no, you know, you don't have to do everything that is asked of you. Mm -hmm. Um, know your limits, know, have healthy boundaries, all that stuff. And, you know, as a musician and even now, you know, putting out a book, of course, I have a book coming out next week and, uh, it's like, yeah, you can't say no to things because it's like, you're not going to get another opportunity like this. You have to say yes to everything. So there is that sort of Mm -hmm. paradox where, uh, you know, it's not healthy at a certain point to be overworked and, and just really exhausted. Uh, but you know, you have a record on the charts, you're, you're out there and you have this, this one moment where everything is riding on you showing up and being the most epic version of yourself every day, day after day, from the time you wake up to the time you go to sleep and sometimes without sleep at all, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) and and so it's it's hard because, yeah, you want to say yes and you want to make sure that you're doing everything you can. Uh, but there is a limit. And, it, you know, everyone has their breaking point, you know, uh, it doesn't matter who you are or what you're made of. I am in awe of people like Chad Smith. And and also, I used to think, you know, like, how does Tommy Lee go out on tour and get wasted every night? As far as I could tell, you know, yeah. <laughs> and and rock out for two hours uh, and seem to just be having such a great time doing it all the time. I was, I was like, I don't, I can't relate to that. I wanted that to be me. I wanted it to just be a big party the whole time and to have no worries and to not feel the, you know, the extent to which it was really wearing me down. But it was, I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't pretend anymore. Like it wasn't, it was just, it was getting really difficult and, uh, and my body was, was being affected by it. Well, you know, obviously it comes to the point that's at the beginning of the book where you you start the book by be the moment where you're trying to record the second album and it comes to a point where you can't be in the band anymore. And then, you know, from the rest of the book, once it starts happening in real time, you have this journey that includes like substance abuse and, you know, mental health issues. And, you know, I obviously I think this is a very important book to have written because there continue to be these kind of stories, especially people coming out of like music and the entertainment industry. So I guess I'd be curious to know from you, like, what do you think, what is missing from like the mental health conversation right now about like, you know, specifically, you know, musicians, entertainers, maybe more generally, and like the toll that this kind of lifestyle takes on you psychologically. Well, thank you for that. Um, you know, it's it's really it, the world has changed a lot since 20 years ago when when Songs About Jane was mm-hmm. coming out. Um, it is nice to see that this conversation is happening a lot more now in the in the public context. Um, you hear artists talking about their mental health and their struggles or the ways in which uh, they're having to work through issues, and I think that's really helpful. Back then, you know, you'd hear a story about somebody canceling a tour or something, and I used to chuckle, you know, when somebody said, you know, so-and-so uh, ended their tour early due to exhaustion, mm-hmm. you know, and I thought, I thought, okay, they're just being a diva. They're tired mm-hmm. of being on tour. They want to come <laughs> home, yep. you know, or they have a drug pro- a pill problem or something and they're not fessing up to it. They're just playing it, downplaying it and they're really in rehab or something. And the reality is the amount of pressure you're under as an artist performing at that level uh, is immense. And when you, you know, it's one thing to show up to work every week, you know, and realize, Oh, I'm tired. I need to catch up on sleep or I'm under a lot of stress. And then you get through your week and you, and you, you know, conk out for a few days and then come back and you're, you're fresh. Like when you have 
millions of dollars running on, you know, you showing up and you, you know, putting on a show that people are not going to be disappointed by, you know, because mm-hmm. people are disappointed. They don't show up. And in this day and age, it used to be, we expected our rock stars to be messed up and strung <laughs> out and, you know, <laughs> forget the lyrics and stuff, but you can't get away with that now. Yeah. You know, you got to be out there and you got to be a hundred percent and you got to put on a show or otherwise there's going to be a thousand, you know, cell phone videos of you messing up, you know? Right. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> So there's definitely that element to answer your question. Now, I think just the visibility is so much bigger. Mm-hmm. As much as we're having this conversation, I think that, you know, um, people in the limelight, if anything, they're even under more scrutiny than they ever were before. And having to be like the expectations of, of them are that they're superhuman, you know, that they have no flaws and that every time in every context, they're going to be uh, really just like beyond what you would be reasonable if you're of expecting another human being like in the workplace or even in a relationship to show up every day as their best self. Right. Right. I'd like to go back, you know, taking all that and go back to a thing that Molly was just talking about earlier that you write in the book about that feeling of having to say yes to everything, especially when you're in that moment where you're like on, you've, you've kind of gotten the like one in a million shot. And now you're riding something, something like, you know, a Maroon five after, um, songs about Jane, uh, and how compelling that attitude, that mindset would be, especially to a younger person, especially somebody getting very famous and successful, uh, for the first time. And I guess it's kind of a cliched way to phrase a question, but if you could like tell yourself or tell somebody in that position, something who's feeling like I have to say yes to ever anything, like how would you give advice to like what you can actually say no on having gone through that? Well, it's tough. You know, obviously I think that the world and and the music business has changed a lot since I was in the middle of it in that, um, I don't think that people are doing the kind of thing that we were doing at that time anymore. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong, but just getting in a van and going out there and building a following in a grassroots way mm-hmm. like that. Why do that when you can just put a show on Instagram live or something, you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Or, you know, suddenly go overnight and have 10 million or a hundred million views on your TikTok clip of your song. Right, right. So it is a little bit of a different world. And I'd be lying if I said that I know exactly how that all works now. I'm just kind of trying to show up to it uh, late to the game now in terms of social media and all that. (laughs) But I will say that um, even within the context of having a lot on your plate, you know, and having, um, having a lot of commitments, maybe even more than what would be healthy uh, as a sober person uh, and as a person who is a mental health professional, um, I think that's when that's for me, that's when the the self-care has to really kick in. Mm -hmm. Uh, that's what you need to show up for yourself even more. So it's not like, Oh yeah, well, I'm doing all this stuff. It's like, it'll have to wait. It's like, okay, well, yeah, you're going to do all this stuff. That's okay. That you want to take on all these commitments, but that means you need to be extra vigilant about how you're caring for yourself, being extra kind to yourself, the way that you talk to yourself, you know, it's okay to be exhausted. You don't have to be your best self every single day. Like I do that to myself a lot. I'm a perfectionist. I put a lot of pressure on myself and I'm like, oh my God, I was in that session and I was a little bit checked out. I, I didn't feel like I was fully present present, or like, and it's like, nobody is fully present a hundred percent of the time. It's okay to be a little bit tired one day or one hour of your day or whatever. Mm-hmm. Or if it's like when I was on tour, I, I felt guilty if I wasn't enjoying myself the whole time. It's like, we're in a new mm-hmm. city and a new country. 
And it was like, we have a night off. Like I need to go out and see this city and I need to enjoy it. And it's like, it doesn't matter that we have another, sh you know, eight shows in eight days after this. And I have to do a TV show and a photo shoot and a meet and greet and whatever. I was like, I feel a responsibility to have the greatest time. And it's like, sometimes the greatest time and the best thing you can do for yourself is just to relax. You have a few hours to relax, just chill out, <laughs> give yourself a breath. When you have time to sleep, the most, the best thing you can do with your time in that moment is get rest because mm -hmm. you don't know when you're going to get it again. So within the context of being overworked, there's always the opportunity to just give yourself what you need in that moment. And it might just be being kind to yourself. You know, it's I, I relate to that a lot. Obviously, the things that I do are like a massively different scale than, you know, what we're talking about. But, you know, I, I tour with the other podcasts that I produce to do live shows and, you know, we'll roll into a city and we're only there, you know, two nights or something, you know, I don't know, my mom will call or something. He's like, oh, you're in, you know, Miami. Are you guys going out or anything? Are you seeing the city? I'm like, no, we are eating at the hotel uh, restaurant and then I'm watching Shark Tank in the room. Like that, that is, <laughs> that is the amount of energy to, 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 you know, enjoy the city or whatever when you're on tour, you know? Right. Yeah. I, I, if I were, I've been asked before, like, if you were to do it again, would you do anything different? And yeah, yes, of course, there's a lot I would do differently. Uh, I don't know, you know, as a 25 year old kid, if I would have been good at taking that advice, mm -hmm. uh, if anyone told it to me, but if I were to do it again, yeah, I just would have like taken those moments to maybe, um, pause for a minute and just uh, say, it's okay that you're exhausted right now. Do whatever you need to do, uh, to get yourself centered obviously you know you you've written this book you seem to have like kind of gone through you know a lot of struggles to come out on the other side and in a better place you know but one kind of game we i feel like sometimes play with um reading these books for this podcast is like did the did this person go to therapy and sometimes i feel like you can tell i feel like you've obviously gone you know a step further in you know continuing your studies and now you are you work in the mental health field so i would love to know you know how how does your awareness of like you know, ha having studied, you know, mental health and like psychology, you know, do you feel like it, it made you a better writer or, or better at kind of like looking back at your experiences and be able to kind of interpret them and, and, you know, recreate them for this book? Absolutely. I think I have grad school to thank for writing this book. Yeah. Really. I mean, writing, writing a book was something that I wanted to do my whole life. I loved, I was passionate about writing and I actually got my undergrad degree uh, in English at UCLA uh, many years ago. But, you know, starting recovery in 2016, uh, I was really just focused on that. And I was volunteering at a recovery center and just wanting to be of service uh, and passionate about that. Mm -hmm. And then the decision to go back and, and get a degree in clinical psychology and become a therapist was, you know, just an outgrowth of that. And I hadn't really thought about what effect it was having on me other than that it was a passion. I was passionate about psychology and I just wanted to uh, continue to do what I was doing in terms of helping other people. But then I find myself in a master's program and to become a therapist, you have to do a lot of self-reflection. Mm -hmm. And I was, I mean, I was doing self-reflection already, you know, in my own therapy and in the 12 steps and all that. Uh, but now I had to actually put it into essay form, <laughs> you know, and, and make a concise argument to find some meaning in the substance of my background and my history and my, and my psychology. Uh, and so I was finding that in telling my story in groups and now writing papers about it, 
um, with the, the education I was gaining about psychology, it was taking on new meaning and new purpose. And I realized that uh, that understanding I had about myself, that awareness lent itself to uh, helping other people just by telling that narrative mm. as opposed to just sitting with people as a therapist. So it became a passion project in terms of a lot of the sort of the intersection of a lot of different things for me, the the passion for writing, the passion for psychology, the creative aspect, you know, of my background. And, and then writing this book just became, um, you know, an, oppor an opportunity on a bigger scale, hopefully to reach people um, just by, by, creating the narrative of what I went through and hopefully having people relate to that on some level and representing hope and recovery. Awesome. Well, I mean, I saw also in the book, you included like links and resources for people, which I'm just like, great. Like, and at the beginning, not at the end. So yeah, I don't know. I, I think it, it, it feels important to me. I hope people, if anyone is listening to the podcast and this, you know, relates to them in some way, check it out. Um, any questions for you, Chris, to to wrap it up? Uh, no, I mean, is there anything else that uh, you know you uh, want to share before we uh, wrap the, wrap up this interview? Well, yeah, I mean, the book is harder to breathe. It's uh, in stores November fifteenth, and it really is uh, to me the culmination of a lot of different aspects of my life, and I'm really proud of it. Uh, I tried to be as honest and vulnerable in writing this book as I possibly could. I felt that. Uh, to connect to people, I, it was my duty to try to do that. Um, so hopefully, I accomplished that. I know that when I was writing it, um, it was a like a roller coaster of emotions for me to mm -hmm. go to all those places. Going back to the to the start of the band and how fun and inspiring that was. It was fun to write, you mm -hmm. know. And then and then going into the dark times, it took me to a really dark place that was almost like therapy for me again, mm -hmm. dealing with the trauma of all that. And then getting to the recovery section, um, again, was light and hopeful and inspiring for me to write. So if, if I know that if I was feeling that while writing it, um, that hopefully people will, will feel that when they're reading it. And if they do, then I will have done my job. So check it out. Awesome. Great. Well, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, it's been a great talking to you. It's been a great conversation. Thank you for having me. This has been And Introducing. We hope to do more of these soon. But until then, you can find us, as always, on SoundCloud.com slash and dash intro dash pod or on Twitter at and intro pod or send us an email at and introducing pod at gmail.com. As always, we've got a big back catalog. Even if we're not putting stuff out at a super fast rate, there's a ton back there. Uh, tell a friend that you like the show. Tell and, a friend. Uh, you can, there's a bunch of episodes to listen to. They're always there. Uh, they will always be there for you. Yes. Anything else, Molly? Uh, nothing, nothing for me. Oh, and listen to Hell on Earth on Chapo Trap House, uh, patreon.com slash Chapo Trap House starting January 11th. That's my last plug. Nice. Bye. Bye.